Welcome to the Anthro to UX podcast, where you will learn how to break into UX with an anthropology degree. Through conversations with leading anthropologists working in user experience, you will learn firsthand how others made the transition, what they learned along the way, and what they would do differently. We will be discussing what it means to do UX research from a practical perspective and what you need to do to prepare a resume and portfolio. I'm your host, Matt Arts, a business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Matt Arts of Anthro to UX. I'm here today with Jamie Sherman, who is currently a senior researcher at Atlassian and product researcher at Netflix, and before that, a research scientist at Intel. So, Jamie, thanks for joining today. Would you mind by telling everybody how you got interested in anthropology? Uh, sure. So, um, first of all, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Uh, so, let's see. I started out as a theater director uh, and I was going to change the world through art, which I like to say was an excellent plan. Um, but for various reasons, um, most of which had to do with sort of life experience of what kind of life you lead as opposed to the work itself, I discovered that theater directing um, is a pretty unstable, rather difficult lifestyle, uh, despite the fact that I really loved the work. Um, and around that time, I had gone back to school to do an interdisciplinary master's degree at NYU, in part because I felt that as an artist, you bring what you know to your art. And as an artist, I wanted to know at that time, I wanted to know more stuff. Um, and so I went back to graduate school. I was taking classes across anthropology, religion, and performance studies. And had this epiphany that this lifestyle of a theater director wasn't really going to work out so well. Um, but I discovered that I loved being in graduate school <laughs> and I loved reading books and talking about them and, and sort of tossing these ideas back and forth. And how could I do this all the time? I could get a PhD and I could do this all the time. But what kind of PhD should I get? <laughs> Um, and I remember thinking about this actually quite a lot. Um, I had found um, that I really enjoyed at the time I was taking, like I said, across religion, anthropology, and um, uh, performance studies. Um, and performance studies at that time was very invested in a sort of post postmodern critique that was very also um, almost trying to prove itself how academic it was. And so they would use, they would sort of quote, uh, you know, Derrida in French and refused to translate it, which I thought was really quite rude. <laughs> um, and I didn't, I didn't really like um, just the general sort of ethos that I was finding there. And in religious studies, I found that um, while I actually really was interested in the topic, uh, I found that the community tended to be quite conservative. So I felt quite strange. Um, and this might be a little spicy to say, but I thought the anthropologists were all a little weird and I kind of liked them. <laughs> Um, and they were all kind of slightly socially awkward, which I think um, is a theme. I think that's partly why one becomes an anthropologist, because this whole social thing is a little mysterious. Um, and a lot of us are trying to figure it out. Um, and I thought I could live with these people. <laughs> um, I could talk to these people over and over. Um, and so I started looking at anthropology departments and anthropology programs. Um, and I also I will also say that I really liked the way that anthropology 
felt like it made me beholden to what somebody else thought as opposed to my own sort of navel-gazing and interpretation of the world. Um, I really liked the idea that it really sort of forced you, what I would say, sort of out of, out of your head <laughs> and into somebody else's mindset or world um, and some kind of rootedness in, in the world. Uh, so that's what got me interested in anthropology. And how were you thinking of applying it at that time? Um, so at that time, I was going to change the world through teaching. That was, you know, that was the progression. First, I was going to change the world through art, and then I was going to change the world through teaching. Um, and in part, I still, that was also a really good idea um, in the sense that I really enjoyed I really enjoyed working, especially with the students who would read some of the the you know the the readings and come back and say, "But wait, I didn't. It, how could it be? How could it work this way? I didn't realize the world. You know, people thought this this differently from the way that I think." Um, which I think is oftentimes the message, the underlying sort of one line message of pretty much every anthropology class ever was that not everybody does it like us, right? Um, and so. Which I feel like is a is a really valuable message and a really great way to change the world, um, to start to realize that, um, again, you yourself and your head is not everybody, <laughs> and that everybody makes sense of the world in the same way that you do. Um, so that was essentially my cause um, at the time. And again, I think that um, in some ways that really parallel uh, the way that I found myself um, leaving uh, the theater, something quite similar happened in the sense of academia. And I loved working in academia. I loved teaching. I didn't love grading, but I loved pretty much everything else about it. Um, but the, the, the life of an academic is actually quite challenging, um, as those of you who are, you know, who are still here, those in the audience, um, and those who have come out of there really know, um, you don't have a lot of control about where you end up. Um, I had a steadily declining income from the moment I started graduate school all the way through my PhD program and slightly beyond. Um, so I was making progressively less money the more educated I got, um, I used to say that my my husband was supporting my teaching habit. Uh, so at the time that I left academia, I was in a, I had progressed from an adjuncting role to one year positions, but they were radically underpaid um, and not really sustainable. Tell me a little bit about how you did make the transition to to business. Yeah. So um, so at the time I was I was teaching, uh, and like I said, my husband was supporting my teaching habit, um, and. He actually got quite ill from the place that he was working. It was insufficiently ventilated. Um, and so we realized that he really needed to leave um, that job, which was fairly well paying um, at the time. And that meant that I needed to make more money. The academic job market had ended uh, pretty, for the year. It was, this was, I think, um, March or April, um, right around Easter time. And so I needed to find a different job and it wasn't going to be, it was probably not going to be in academia. And so I had flirted with the idea. We had talked sometimes like, well, if this academic thing doesn't work out, maybe we'll try to figure out how to move um, to Portland, which is where my family is living now. Um, at the time we were on the East coast um, and um, having kids, you start to realize that living away far away from family has its drawbacks. <laughs> um, and so we thought, you know, maybe this was the time to actually figure it out. But I found that I actually didn't know how. Uh, I had no idea what the jobs would be called. 
I didn't know what, not only did I not know what the jobs would be, I just didn't know what to call them or how to look for them because I didn't know what the titles were. I didn't know what I was qualified for in terms of positions. Um, you know, they don't usually say wanted anthropologists who studied bodybuilders in Brooklyn for, um, for well-paid position in Portland. Um, so I started doing, um, you know, what I called a new research project entitled, What Do Anthropologists Do When They're Not Teaching? Um, so, and what I mean by that was really literally reaching out to everybody in my network, whether or not they they were an anthropologist, to ask them if they knew any anthropologist or social scientist who was working outside of academia. I wanted to talk to them. Uh, and uh, being a little bit uh, fearless or as fearless as I could make myself in terms of reaching out and asking people if they would talk to me about what they do, um, what their role was called, what kind of work it was. Um, and that's really what I did. I started, um, I ended up, uh, my sister, who's not an anthropologist, she's a master in public health, but she works for Kaiser. And she said, hey, I think there's an anthropologist that works for Kaiser. And so I ended up talking to an anthropologist who works at the Kaiser Research Center. Um, and I ended up talking to a sociologist who works at the um, the Veteran Affairs um, uh, organization here in Portland. I ended up talking to um, a, a few other anthropologists here and there. Um, and then I remembered that my mother, um, several years before that, um, had called me when I was still, I think I was after field work, doing, writing my dissertation and said uh, something like, hey, did you know they have anthropologists at Intel? And I said, whatever, I got work to do. I got to go. <laughs> something like that. Um, and then I remembered this and I started, you know, search, internet searching anthropologist intel and I came up with two names, uh, Genevieve Bell and Ken Anderson. But I couldn't find an email for whatever reason. My Google searching was not working on an email. And so um, I called the switchboard and said something like, Hi, my name is Jamie Sherman. I'm looking to talk to an anthropologist that works for you. Um, I've only got two names. These are the names I have. Is there somebody I could talk to about maybe setting up an informational interview? And they said, hold on. And they connected the line and it rang. And Ken Anderson picked up the line. And I think he was just as surprised as I was because I was certainly not prepared to actually have a conversation with Ken Anderson. <laughs> I was prepared to maybe talk to somebody who might be able to connect me eventually. Um, and so, and it, I, I recall really vividly, I was sitting outside in my backyard while my two kids who were pretty young at the time um, were leaping off this play structure that we had and screaming. <laughs> and so I was like, um, hi. <laughs> and I asked, but I asked for an informational interview and he agreed to, to set one up. And so we ended up setting up uh, an informational interview for a couple of weeks after that. Um, and then I got off the phone and started madly sort of Googling and looking for anything um, that, that he had written and trying to figure out more about him um, in the lead up. But we ended up doing an informational interview a few weeks later. Uh, and uh, it also turned out that they had a position open that they had done, uh, uh, they had been through a few candidates before, um, and not been, um, not found the person that they were looking for. And I think they were prepared to be a little bit, uh, you know, sort of open-minded to something different. Uh, and so, um, I sent my resume, I ended up talking to a few other people on that team, and then I came out and did a job talk. 
and I got the job. So that was 2012. I think um, this all went very fast. So this was end of March is when I started my research project. Uh, sometime in April is when I spoke to Ken. Um, I believe I came out to Portland toward the end of May or something like that. Um, and they told me they were going to offer me the job, but they didn't actually get the formal job offer until I believe it was the beginning of July. And I had to start by July 16th because they hired me under a rubric they called recent college grad. And I had to be within a certain number of months out of my degree program. And so that was the last possible date that I could start. So we had something like 13 days to pack up the house and move across the country <laughs> and start this job. Um, but we did it. It was pretty exciting at the time. Um, and yeah, so I started at Intel in 2012. And the very first day, I went through their um, their onboarding, which they called Neo, which I thought was very weird. Uh, and I came upstairs and I said, hi, I'm so excited to be here. And they said, hi, that's great. And then there's kind of a pause, <laughs> um, which I wondered, I wonder what my job is. <laughs> I wonder what I'll be doing. Um, and eventually we worked it out. But I will say that, that the first few months were... Um, felt pretty mysterious to me. It was hard. It was, took a while to figure out what my job was. You got, you know, kind of lucky there. It, it went pretty quick for you, quicker than it's gone for some. Um, and of course, you know, you're joking about how in the beginning it was, you know, a little vague, you kind of, you know, but it was 2012 and a lot has changed since then. So going, having gone through, you know, Netflix now being at Atlassian, what have you seen, you know, change in the state of hiring for anthropologists in UX? So I do think it's changed. And I do think um, I was very lucky in that at that time, um, the that at that time, there was a team at Intel that was all social scientists, right? So Genevieve Bell is an anthropologist. I'm sure many of you have heard of her. Um, she had a leadership of a lab in the R&D space. And within that lab, she had three teams. They had designers, technologists, and social scientists. So this was a team entirely made up of, of social scientists, mostly PhDs, mostly ex-academics. Um, and so it was a great place uh, for me to be able to transition. And so I was fortunate in many ways. One, that I called the switchboard and Ken Anderson picked up. Two, that they had an open position. Uh, three, that they'd seen a few people that hadn't satisfied them. So they were kind of interested in something slightly different because I was definitely different um, from um, the usual sorts of folks that, that made that transition. Um, and then finally, that there was, um, you know, that, that, yeah, that they were willing to take a chance on me. Um, I do think, I will say kind of in my defense, and I do kind of say that I didn't know what I was doing, and that's true to some extent, but I did a lot of homework. Um, I really spent a lot of time rewriting my resume, practicing my job talk, trying to figure out like how to represent myself in a way that would make me legible to the people that were looking at me as a potential hire. Uh, and I think... Um, I think that still holds true. I think that uh, the real trick in making a transition out of an academic role uh, really is to make visible the kinds of skill sets that you bring to a role. Uh, now, I'll also say that I was hired as a recent grad, um, and that is a great, um, for those of you who are um, in graduate school or in undergraduate um, or um, in a degree program or slightly after, um, that is actually a really good 
kind of rubric to be able to use to leverage because the expectations of you knowing the industry, uh, the bar's a bit lower, right? They're looking for skill sets and uh, potential more than, um, you know, a wide swath of experience because you're a recent graduate. Um, it's a little bit harder, uh, I think, if you're further out. Um, but at that point, I've seen some folks that have done it. And I think, again, it's still the same kind of challenge is really making yourself legible to the people who are looking at your resume and your materials so that they can see um, more easily what it is that you've done that's applicable to their context. You know, back to Ken for a second. Obviously, it's a great story. I, I got to hear it at the AAA recently, and it, it was fun to hear a second time because it's so, you know, sort of amazing. It, it's hard to believe it even happened. But of course, it's also not the way that one should probably go about doing an informational interview, right? And so I'm sure you learned a few things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I will say, I mean, it's not that... It, Actually, I would slightly disagree in the sense that, you know, I, I was lucky that he picked up the phone and it was pretty serendipitous and most people don't even have desk phones anymore. Um, but I will say that that um, that fearless, you know, sort of just putting myself out there and cold calling or contacting folks is still a totally viable way to find informational interviews. And while I was lucky that they had a position, I didn't ask for one. I, I, and I, I think that's actually important. When you're asking for an, inter, an informational interview, um, the reason um, those are easier, this, the bar is lower because I'm not asking you for a job. I'm just asking you for half an hour of your time. Um, and in the same way, um, you know, I often do informational interviews. I can't offer anybody a job. I'm not a hiring manager, but I can offer people information. I can offer them insight. I can, you know, I can talk to them. And that's what I was really asking for. Uh, and I think that um, I think that 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 uh, putting yourself out there is still true. Um, most of the time now, I would use LinkedIn. I just didn't know about LinkedIn, and LinkedIn itself was probably not quite as robust as it is now. Uh, but I've definitely done that since then. Uh, about two or three years into my time at Intel, I was curious about you know who else was out there, what it was like outside of Intel. And I started, I, I reached out to people on LinkedIn and asked them for informational interviews just because I wanted to hear what work was like other places. And um, quite a few people talked to me I, and I, I'm still grateful. It's really um, an awesome tool that is at your disposal as a researcher to be able to uh, find people that will talk to you and tell you more about the work they do and the life they lead. Yeah, agreed on, on LinkedIn for sure. Would you suggest that though people have a, a more defined set of questions when reaching out? Like when people reach out to you today, do you like to see them be like really prepared? So I will say, like I said, when I once I got the interview, I have a tendency to go and Google stock people to find out as much as I can uh, about them before, um, before we meet, um, if I can. And I I think that's always a good idea. It gives you a sense of where people have been, whether you have people in common. It gives you, if you can find their writing, it gives you a sense of what they're talking about. It gives you something to ask about. So I think it's useful to have some questions in mind. I also think, um, you know, I really, what I would really say is use your research lens. You know, I, I, you know, I do say kind of flippantly that it's a research project called "What Do Anthropologists Do When They're Not Teaching," um, but I also think it's worth taking that seriously. When you think about, um, you know, doing informational interviews, you should use your research lens and your research skills uh, because I think you're also listening not just for what people say, 
but how they say it. You're listening for um, the kinds of vocabularies they use. You're listening for um, the kinds of things that they're describing, and they might be describing something um, that they love, but you don't. <laughs> or they might be uh, alternately, they might be describing something that they think is terrible, and you might think, "Oh, that actually sounds kind of great." Um, and in fact, I definitely had that happen. Um, you know, a few times where people were describing things that that they did not care for in the work, and I thought, "Hmm, that actually sounds kind of awesome. I think I would like that." <laughs> uh, so I think it's important as you're um, thinking about informational interviews and then preparing for them that you think of it, you take it seriously as a research project, and think about the kinds of things that you want to know, but also treat it and you know, just like I would an an anthropological interview. I let it be a let it be a conversation. So um, it's great to have some prepared questions or some things that you want to know about, and so think ahead of what you want to know. Um, but it's also great to kind of follow the thread of the conversation and, and dig into things that you find interesting. Uh, and I will say, I think that when I spoke to Ken at the time, uh, I think that's one of the things that um, made. Uh, that helped the conversation have a next conversation was that I was asking some things about the you know work that he had done that I'd come across that was published online. Uh, I was asking questions that were relevant to the things that he said. Um, it was a conversation in which we, which we could build. You know, you mentioned the word interesting there, and I'm just going to use that as a as a connector here to your work because you've done some work in media, gaming, um, AI. So, would you mind just telling everybody a little bit about sort of you know your type of projects you've been on? Yeah, it's really evolved over time, and I think some people, um, you know, end up having a, a more I guess I would sort of stable uh, domain expertise, depending on the the industry or the company that you end up with. Uh, when I first joined Intel, the first set of projects that I, I worked on, um, I was, uh, Don Nafis at the time was working on Quantified Self. Uh, and at the time, I will say it was a project that I could wrap my head around as opposed to some of the other ones, which I didn't quite understand what they were talking about. And so I latched onto that and said, can I help you? <laughs> uh, can I work with you on that? Uh, and which I did. We worked together on that. And then from there, I started doing a lot of work on content creation. Uh, we were really interested in uh, the kinds of work that content creators were doing. We felt like that was going to be an important area for um, for uh, uh, for work with computers, which, of course, I worked for Intel. That's what we made. Um, and... And so then I, I that from that work, I mean, that really just sort of built on the work that I had done around um, sort of physical practices and and um, and sort of the theater background. I think made that a natural progression for me. And then gaming, because some of my background also had been around play in my graduate work, and so that felt like a fairly natural set of questions or or domains to be looking at. Um. My last couple of years at Intel, we were no longer in labs. Um, I should say we were reorganized um, from uh, the R&D space. And uh, a number of us moved from the labs into the client compute group, which is the laptops and desktop space. And I spent uh, on different teams, um, but I spent the rest of my time at Intel in that, in that organization. Uh, and toward the end, I was working on content creators and working with the Silicon Architecture team on driving a human-centered approach to silicon architecture design. So really identifying 
where that space was going, what was happening with content creation, and what that meant for future use cases that would need to be supported by the computers that they would buy. Uh, and that was really fun. That was actually a really, really great project, and, and it's still ongoing. There's other people still doing it. I was having a really good time. Um, but I got a little bit curious, um, and at the time, Netflix reached out to me, I think, um, primarily because of that work in the content creation space. They were interested in um, working on their um, data and analytics and machine learning uh, organization was interested in doing more to help support the creative decision-making of their content executives. So making decisions about which content to um, to purchase and create. Um, but it, they, at the time, sort of the relationship between the creative executives and the data that they were seeing or providing um, was not great. And so they were interested in improving that, and they hired me to come in and work with those teams on how to make that better. And that was a lot of fun. Uh, that was a really uh, just a fun set of questions and a, and a great community to be researching in. It was pretty interesting to do research on essentially how Hollywood works um, and how decision, you know, what kinds of decisions are we talking about. Um, when we talk about making decisions and how does that then relate to data and analytics? Um, what is it that we could do on the data and analytics side that would improve that relationship and improve that uptake and, and dialogue between the creative executives and the toolmaking side? Yeah, really exciting. And so, you know, you've had the opportunity to work on a number of emerging technologies through your career, and somewhat of that is probably a, a function of where you worked. Um, and I appreciate that not every organization may offer that opportunity, but increasingly a lot of anthropologists are very interested in being in that space, interested in being in more strategic spaces. You're also seeing more people kind of get interested in mixed methods and more kind of like, you know, data science approaches. So having been, you know, there now for, for quite a number of years, do you have any recommendations in that space if you know if, if somebody wanted to get more into again merging tech or, you know, some of these areas? Well, so first of all, I think just getting to know different kinds of technologies um, in different ways. So there's a number of ways that you can start to just sort of be conversant. Excuse me. I would say in, um, so for example, there are meetup groups. Uh, I was, when I was studying virtual reality and actually when we studied quantified self, um, meetup were a great way to go um, in terms of learning and getting connected with community and talking to people. Um, and you don't have to be, uh, you know, super knowledgeable about it. You can show up and start to absorb. And it's a great way to do um, participation part of um, part of research um, that actually you don't really get to do very often as part of, um, you know, in industry. So it can be very difficult to, um, you know, research projects are often very quick, very short. Um, they tend to be structured around, you know, fairly focused set of methods. Um, uh, there's lots of different things you can do, but often it's sort of interview based or, or site visit based with an interview or with a diary study. So it, it you know, it tends to be relatively narrow. And I found um, for a while I was calling it sort of parallel participation, where you would find venues or spaces that you could participate in that helped give me some of that um, contextual understanding that helped me then ask better questions when I was in an interview situation. Um, so I think that that's some, the, that's something that you can do, uh, now you don't have to wait, uh, especially if there's something that you're interested in, uh, you know, 
again, so I was doing virtual reality. There are often virtual reality meetups in different places. I know there's one in San Francisco because I went to one once. Um, I think it's still around. Um, you can certainly find out. Uh, what else? I think just, uh, again, the same kinds of things that I would do anytime I'm starting a project, which is start reading. Uh, you know, there's so much content on the internet. I think some of the real challenges are figuring out uh, how to focus, where to go. And so if you're not actively working on a project, I think you follow your interest and you start to read up on the things that you find interesting. Um, there's a ton out there about AI and ethics. Um, and um, there's a lot of interest right now around sort of different aspects of data and, um, and, and whether it's on the machine learning and AI side or on the analytics side, um, whether it's on um, in the sort of creative spaces or whether it's somewhere else in the disinformation all these is tons and tons of different topics and areas that we could be thinking about. And so I would just encourage people to follow their curiosity and explore and learn some of the language and think about it in ways that give you something to say. I also know you do some mentoring. And so um, do you have a, you know, any kind of point of view on whether it's you know an early career you know individual sort of right out of school or anything that you know you typically, say or do when having your mentoring sessions? Yeah, I mean, I often tell people to own their own skills, right? So I think oftentimes, especially as anthropologists, we're used to studying up. And one of the most effective tools that we have in those contexts is to not know, right? The the willingness to not know is one of our superpowers and to say, I don't know, tell me about this, <laughs> help me understand. Uh, but that um, can be a liability when it comes to looking for a job and that we feel kind of hum you know humble and don't want to claim a space, uh, don't want to say that we do something that we're not sure if we do. And I think that uh, when you... Um, when you are looking for a job, when you're in the, the, the job market, and I'm really talking about myself here, you actually have to uh, sort of channel a different sort of aspect of your personality <laughs> um, and really just own the skills that you have. Um, and I, I sometimes, you know, I joke about my, my dissertation topic, which, again, I'll just tell people was bodybuilders in Brooklyn. Um, and I was really interested in um the ways that these bodily practices uh, and these everyday sorts of playfulness engage with larger questions about race and gender. Uh, so uh, nothing even remotely, um, you know, on the surface that sounds relevant to anybody outside of academia and even within academia, I was a little bit strange, right, given that topic. Um, and so, what I think is important to recognize is that nonetheless, you know, you've spent a certain number of years studying how to do research. Uh, you've spent years teaching um, and identifying the skills that are within the kinds of activities that you have done that are applicable to new spaces is really critical. And owning those, don't apologize for them. You own them. You have them. You can do this. <laughs> and so... I think that's a really important thing for um, for anthropologists in particular, but anybody making a career transition to understand and to cultivate that sense of your own um, your own skill set and what you can do. Everybody has so much more experience than they often frame the first time they put down like a, a resume focused on business. 
Yeah. And, and I will say also, um, if you have um, access to your university career center, um, I would go there. If you don't, I would find a friend with an MBA or somebody with experience in business and have them look at your resume. I did this. I did both, actually. And I would say, you know, make use of your network, all of it, um, and have people take a look at it because it was painful it's still painful. I hate it. <laughs> I hate trying to write my resume. I really do. But having somebody who doesn't actually come from anthropology take a look at it and say, you know, wait, what's this? Or tell you, you know, talk to you about it and how they perceive what you've written down was incredibly useful. Um, like I said, painful. Don't expect it to be um, a pleasant experience. <laughs> it wasn't for me. <laughs> Um, but it, it was really, really useful to have people look at um, my resume and and talk to me about what I could um, what I could add. Um, I'll say one thing that I learned from that process and from the the number of times that I've I've rewritten my um, my resume is that uh, one of the things that you can show in your resume by the way that you write it is that you understand the nature of impact, right? So in a business, unlike um, somewhat unlike academia. I think in academia, um, they're also interested in impact, but it tends to be measured in publications, right? Um, in industry, um, they're very much interested in what did you do that changed something that had impact? Because generally speaking, we're not doing research um, to contribute to overall knowledge, but rather to help shape the company, the product, something. We're intended to help do something um, within the context of the organization. So what you want to be able to show is that you know you can articulate something in terms of impact. And it actually doesn't matter that much what the impact was. Maybe the impact was three papers, but if you can express, you know, I executed this project, this was my role, this is what I this was the situation, this is what I did, um, and it led to X. <laughs> Right. Um, it helped shape. Um, you know, it helped. It led to the publication of three papers and a conference talk, or it led to, um, you know, a, a change in the policy of something. Or it led to. If you can articulate what you've done in terms of um, in terms of that kind of impact, that is another way that it's helpful for people who are looking at it to see what you can do and that you know um, that you are able to think in terms of impact and in terms of what you can do to help somebody else to do something in the world. If people you know, were inspired by this conversation and wanted to reach out, where could they find you? Uh, so the easiest place to find me is LinkedIn, Jamie Sherman. I can't remember. I think it's Jam Sherman, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken. But if you search my name, I'll, I should come up. Very well. Well, Jamie, thanks very much for taking the time. I, I love the story of, of Intel. It was really great to hear it again. I'm glad we could share it with our, all the listeners. Likewise. And I, I will say that my, my, my colleagues at Intel used to say, don't tell that story because it really doesn't work that way in reality. Um, so I will say it is a, a little bit unusual. Um, but um, but nonetheless, I think it's it's, you know, take a chance, put yourself out there and you just never, never know. Thank you all for listening to the Anthro to UX podcast. To learn everything you need to break into UX, visit anthrotoux.com. There you will find all the podcast episodes and career coaching resources. Please like, share, and subscribe. See you next time.